Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indy. What's up, everybody? My name is Indy, and the gentleman all the way over there on the all the way over on the right, that is Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting. And we have Ben Hoyt in the middle, our special guest, and this is Indie Game Business. Welcome. Yeah, and for those of you who watch Tiger King, you may recognize Ben. He's the one that was interviewed quite frequently with no shirt on. He has got more teeth now, but uh <laughs> That's I'm keeping funny. my tats. I'm keeping my tats under under this popcorn t-shirt. So we we were we were just discussing that before we went live. Uh, no, Ben Ben and I met. We were trying to figure out how far back, but it was like 2001. And mm-hmm. I, GDC was in San Jose. We met, and we've stayed in touch. We're still you know friends to this day. He lives out in Apocalypse Central in LA. So. Which we call it, which is what we call it, even when there isn't a coronavirus outbreak. We just out of sheer curiosity, what is traffic like in LA right now? You know, I wouldn't know because I don't go out. But the photos I've seen are pretty stunning, and uh, I have heard anecdotally from people who are like, "Oh yeah, things that they, the drives that they make now and the time they make them are completely unheard of." You know, it's like I can get around the block in less than an hour and a half now. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And the skies are blue and clear. Oh, stunning. It's beautiful. Oh. Indy, can we get so yeah, we still got LinkedIn issues. Now we are somebody says they can't hear us either, but I know we can't see us. Did we do that RMTP thing again? I mean, it's just set up to standard be that way. So uh, all right. Well, we we still don't know what's going on with LinkedIn. Um so yeah, we want to talk about how things are are changing for better, for worse, with all of the social distancing and everybody's working from home now. And what, where do we want to start? I mean, and I want your input on this too, Andy. I mean, if we want to start there. Okay, well, I can start. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened because we have, there's five people that live with us, right? We got my wife, we got my daughter, my granddaughter, and and my wife's dad. <laughs> and uh, the girls had a spa day the other day and apparently i got my toes and my fingernails painted pink so um <laughs> that's a little bit different <laughs> so we, we won't think that have changed andy no, yeah no, i mean you do like a little nor saturday there's night, weird you know? shit that happens at our house anyway so <laughs> but i mean on the streaming side are you seeing like an influx more people watching more people streaming i I think there's more people streaming and more people watching for me personally i haven't really been streaming that much but i think i've seen for other streams they are getting a massive increase in viewers overall on twitch because i mean everyone's from home so everyone's just you know i wonder if that like changes the because you can go in your and your stats and see like X amount of people watch from the web, X amount of people watch from their PC, X amount of people watch from their mobile devices. I wonder if that has increased the amount of people watching from consoles or people watching from um, their PC as opposed to people watching from their iPads or Android devices. That that would be an interesting I, thing to have a look at. I don't know how many people 
I never pay attention to that anyway. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I would assume you got more people watching from PC. I, I don't no know. That would be something interesting to look into. I would, I would hypothesize that you're going to see a bigger jump not on the consoles because with everybody home now, I, this is my, my theory about this, and this is completely unsupported by any actual data. Let's just get that out there first. But That sounds uh, like uh, 80% of Facebook right now. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the majority. Right. <laughs> no, uh, so I think my point is that with so many new people online at home, stuck at home, that, that a lot of what I'm hoping uh, will happen is people who are not traditionally gamers and not traditionally into um, online games or Twitch streaming or whatever the activity is, are going to find themselves with so little else to do that they're going to become into that. And and so that we, we aren't just seeing a bunch of gamers run home and play games and get online, but actually, in addition to that, a bunch of new people who otherwise would have been out going to sporting events, playing sports, doing other types of activities also getting into these things because they're one of the few activities that's available and that means you know growing the the pool overall of of these people which i think would mean probably you're going to see a bigger spike on non-consoles because the console people are more likely to already be tuning in and then hopefully it'll also mean a, a growth of the overall pie you know once this is all passed you're going to get some percentage of those people are going to go oh wait a minute these video games and things are actually really cool uh, I'm going to stick with them now that I don't even now that I don't have to, and and that that will be a, a boon for our industry in the long run. I, I, I think so too. I you know one thing I saw was that uh, they did uh, it was a week or so ago, like just some NASCAR yes, drivers did, yeah. did like a virtual a virtual <laughs> event, and it was so popular that now NASCAR is doing a whole season, but it's yeah. not, it's like with a bunch of NASCAR drivers from all different sections of NASCAR and they have like the official NASCAR announcers. And I think that's yeah, really wow. cool. They they had nine, over 900,000 yeah. viewers on FS1. Wasn't even like on regular Fox, it was on FS1. And I sat down and watched it. I mean, it's in some way, well, granted I am not, I am nothing normal. I grew up in North Carolina. I mean, Richard Petty's shop was 20 minutes from my house. You know, so NASCAR is something that, you know, I've been following my entire life. But, you know, it's got that sport got to the point where you see empty stands everywhere. They did all this growth, and there's a ton of different theories on why fans have dropped, but you don't see nearly as many people going to the events anymore and having something like this where you you did you had not only some of the current drivers but you had drivers in other sections of nascar because there's like all the stuff you see local and then you go to trucks and then you go to the yeah and it's all different drivers i thought that was cool but then then you have people like bobby labani bobby labani's been retired for a decade you know, and he jumped in there and started doing it. And, and in many ways, it's one of the most pure versions of who's a better driver because everybody's running the exact same car. It doesn't matter who has this engine set up or have they had their camber or their tire pressure or whatever. Everybody's running the same damn car. 
So, which is ironic, really, because that's supposed to be the way NAS- uh, the stock car racing is anyway, right? Well, yeah, but you got to remember, Richard Petty once said, there is absolutely nothing stock about a stock car. <laughs> so, but it, they used to run the IROC series where they basically put everybody in a Camaro and they would bring people in from F1 and, and, and IndyCars and all these other racing. And that was like the international, IROC was international race of champions. And so that's what they tried to do there. But now you've got, you know, legitimately, everybody's running the same thing. I, mean, I was watching uh, one of the drivers who runs the the big league. They change sponsors now so much I can't remember what they're called, but the 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 highest league, and he's had an explosion on Twitch because like me, I realized that, okay, wait, I'm watching this on Fox, but I'm not getting actually the the good audio that I would be getting if I was on Twitch. And so I switched it over to to Twitch to watch his feed. And someone asked him, they said, why are the sim racers so much better than the real racers if this is a simulation? And he said, when I'm driving the car on a track, he said, I don't, Listen, I listen for a little stuff, but you feel it, you know. So if my right rear is going low, I can feel it. And he said, when you're doing the sim, you don't have that, and everything is visual. And he said, so the people that have been playing the sim for a long time, which they have, you know, it's you know, it's second nature. But yeah, so many people, it became the biggest esports event as far as viewership on TV, I think, ever. Uh, and now the other running a whole series of it. So there are absolutely opportunities coming out of this, you know, yeah. but at the same time, you know, you've got companies, with, I talked to a team this morning and they had a whole lineup of contract work from a major U.S. media company. And that company just said, look, we don't know when things are coming out. We're going to put everything on hold. And instead yeah. of saying, hey, here's the money to get to your next milestone. They were like, yeah, we're just not paying you anything until, you know, whatever. And now that is absolutely killing some of these studios. Yeah. I mean, I think that, unfortunately, that's that's just a, a taste of what's happening. I mean, you want to be in a restaurant business right now. You know what I mean? It's happening in yeah. industries all over the country, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, I don't even want to think about it. I mean, I'm... <laughs> You know, I uh, I wrapped a contract a couple of weeks ago, like a week before things started to get real ugly, and um, I've just been relieved that it looks like some people are still uh, moving forward and and uh, hiring and doing that kind of thing because um, I assumed at least at the time that like everything was just going to get completely shut down, and for our industry that doesn't seem to have been the case. There are definitely oh, shit, no. uh, uh. lots of activity still happening, but I'm sure there's some people who are getting screwed by this. You know, uh, they are. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that's ironic right now. It's like my wife's getting laid off in three days. She knows. Yeah. They, already, they already told them. It's like, but, you know, they're the, the company is going to keep them on insurance through two months to hope they can, you know, get back and, and be going full time again at that point in time. But it's like our, our work over here at the Powell Group has taken off. I've been on basically the phone all morning this morning and it's been like that for the last two days you know and so that's not only because you brought up the the digital conference thing before we went live yeah part of that is the digital conference because we've been doing these things for a year now 
and you know we've been standing there going hey this is something cool this is something new saves you money it, it's really good and everybody's been like oh whatever you know blah 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 digital conference and now we're having two and three calls a week you know with companies going can you uh do one of these for us and yeah. it's, it's not just the game industry you know our partner over at meet to match you know he's he's having eight, 10 phone calls a day with all kinds of different industry events. But which I, I think the, the question that I think is really the one that I'm interested in to find out the answer to, and it's probably true for. We lost all your audio there. Are you still there? Did we lose? Yep. I see him, but I don't hear him. We, yeah, you're, you're not you're not talking anymore, Ben. Uh, there's all right. He's he's gonna be back in a second. Um, we where there's a question in here you can answer, Jay. Um, all right. From uh, did I? Are we back? Or we're back. We got to get your camera yeah, we, though. We know without you, Ben. We have a different guest yeah. now. So um, yeah. all right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hold on. We, you know, we gotta... I uh, I try to be real responsible and have my like uh, settings on my iPhone kick in and tell me, you know, so many minutes on social networking today, you got to stop. But it occasionally will completely interrupt the conversation. The dog's getting like, into oh, something in the background, but there's right a question right there. there. <laughs> so, so what's the question we got? Indy left. Everybody's just going crazy. All right. So anyway, I, I, was, this... I was just saying, I think the thing that's going to be interesting is, is what is whether you're like the spike you're seeing an in interest in online conferences and stuff persists beyond the immediate, you know, coronavirus sort of lockdown phase. And if, if people come out of this and go, oh, you know what, that was effective and cost effective and satisfactory. And we're going to go ahead and keep doing those. Or if people go, OK, great. Now we can get back to going to San Francisco and meeting up at GDC or whatever. You know what I mean? I think based on just looking over the last, the, the four events that we've had in the last year, each one has grown. Mm -hmm. You see people, so the different thing is, everybody knows GDC is in March, Game Connection, I mean, um, Gamescom in August, and they plan for them. The difference with the digital conference is we can do them more often. We can do one every month if we wanted to, which we typically don't do. But you get companies who go to one and they don't necessarily need to go to the next one, but then they'll go to the one following. But we have seen an uptick in attendance at every single one of them because people realize after they do it that it's not a gimmick. It does work, it's effective, and in many ways, it's better. And so then, of course, we saw like a hockey puck for, we had over 700 people, 700 participants in the one last week. Usually it's around, you know, 100 or so. Um, but people understand it's a matter of getting them to see the value in it. And that's what I've been saying for a year. It's, it's once you attend one and you see how much more effective it is, then you're like, oh, wait, this is how I want to do it for, from here so on out. I'm, I'm curious, and maybe you can answer this question for me if you don't mind, but it's obviously I, I haven't attended one yet. And that's because you um, suck. I know, I know, but at least I'm, I'm, I'm honest about it. I wear it on my sleeve. Um, so, so uh, you know, I'll give you an opportunity to maybe plug them a little bit by answering this question on uh, uh, for me because. Uh, when I think of going to a conference like GDC or something, I think of, you know, what are the activities that happen there that are of value to people? And I think that the two big and obvious ones are 
attending sessions and um, networking, like general networking, reconnecting with people you know, meeting new people you haven't met before. And then depending upon uh, who you are and what your priorities are, there's also um, almost certainly a either a deal-making uh, opportunity there where people are trying to have, have business meetings. Uh, and then there's, there's also a hiring element, right, where people are trying to meet employers and, and get jobs and, and that kind of thing. When I think about GDC, for me, and this is obviously going to vary depending upon who you're talking to, but for me, most of the time, the value of GDC is on the networking side first and foremost, which is, you know, something that happens a lot in the evening after the show um, or, you know, either at parties or at the uh, lobbies of the hotels with the big bars where you're reconnecting with friends and then meeting their friends and then going out and having a good time and building relationships that you can then you know, uh, you know, carry forward. And that to me feels like one of the things that would be most difficult to replicate in a digital environment. Whereas, you know, if I needed to have a meeting or, um, watch a presentation, I can imagine how that would make more sense, um, in a digital environment. And I'm just curious if I'm missing something or if, if you, if you feel like, what, what do you feel is the, the sort of like, if you were to give your conference a score between one and 10, or it, let's not say you are any, any, you know, the, the idea of an online conference, a score between one and 10 in each of those categories, what would you, how would you rate it? So all right, here's, here's one fundamental difference. So what you just described is you're going to a show for the social aspects. Generally, you, yeah. Yeah. And, and me, the very same way. I haven't attended a lecture at GDC right. in probably a yes. decade. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I know that the majority of the business that is happening is happening over in the JW or yeah. the Death Star bar or somewhere like that, not necessarily on the floor. So, yeah. There are ways that we have addressed that, but it's not going to be the same. You know, that's just the reality of social distancing now. You, what we've done is we put a uh, a special set of rooms channels on our Discord server, and we've got over 900 companies on our Discord server now. But if you attend one of the events, you get access to the virtual event channels where you can do that. You can do the, you know, random networking and, and talk to people and that sort of stuff. It's not going to replace going to a conference and hanging out for an hour or two or five in the bar at, you know, whichever hotel it is. That's just the reality of it. The, the difference that we, you know, try to make is I absolutely loathe companies that hide knowledge behind a paywall. Mm. It's not going to happen to me. You know, we're adding lectures to our next one, but it's not going to be a situation where, you know, like the Pocket Gamer conference coming up. They have a digital conference coming up. Amazingly how everybody wants to do a digital conference now. Mm. They've got one coming up. And you can get a $50 ticket if you are an indie developer with less than 10 people. Uh, if you are another developer or a publisher, there's like a $150 ticket. If you're not a developer or a publisher, it's a $250 ticket. And you're not going to be able to see the lecture content unless you buy a ticket. To me, that's that's just bullshit. That's the reason we started doing this show, frankly, two years ago, is because I wanted to be able to take the knowledge that people like you and I and Dan 
have, but we somehow take it for granted because you're just like, oh, well, of course you know how to qualify a publisher. That's just, you know, everybody knows that, but no, they don't know that. And I wanted to take these fundamental things about business in the industry and make it accessible so people can learn it without, you know, spending 10 grand to fly to San Francisco for a week. That is what we try to facilitate. We're, we're there to educate and we're there to provide opportunities for developers to meet publishers. Do you the, monetize at all? We do, but it's not, it, it's not a profitable venture by any yeah. means. You know, it's a, um, we started by on the first one, we gave away a lot of tickets and what we found was the people that didn't pay for a ticket didn't get involved. They they didn't see the value in it. They you know weren't invested personally in it. So you go the people that did pay the publishers that come in and they look at it and there's a you know a list of fifty developers and and maybe twenty of them have a profile filled out and that's just not good for anybody. So we do charge, but it's not something that you know I'm going to say remotely actually makes money. You know it's. it's that that's just what it is. But you know people talk about oh you don't get the random encounters with publishers. No, you don't, but you also have a direct easy to sort, easy to read listing of every publisher who is going to be in attendance mm-hmm. and exactly what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to rely on those chance meetings. And you can still, I mean yeah, you can still do it on Discord. You can still we have a lot of publishers on our Discord, but for what you and I look at in our conference experience, it's quite frankly not going to replace it. I mean, I'm not going to yeah. sit here and say it is because that's a whole different world. You know, that that's a different reasoning. Our event is built to share knowledge and to provide targeted opportunities for companies to you know, show do, you, what they're doing. do you guys try to host uh, any kind of like um, online happy hour? Like yeah, everybody's encouraged to, you know, be on at this time and come to this room and have a drink in hand and, you know, spin off into little subgroups with whoever they <laughs> meet or want and just kind of chat and bullshit. Like, so, so Liam over at, um, the, Liam has a gigantic Trello board, basically, of, of game development information. He started doing something like this, and it's something that feasibly, yes, we could do on our Discord, but I'll tell you the God's honest truth is I'm not organized enough to be able to do it. You know, if someone else came in and said, yes, at you know, because there's like the group out of the UK that does the Indie Dev Hour on Twitter. Mm-hmm. If someone were to come in and do it, then yes, I'm all for it. Knock yourself out. I'm just doing good, especially these days, to get work done, you know, educate an eight-year-old and manage to eat lunch, you know, much less, you know, how can I organize social events? But but Discord gives you that possibility of doing that. Yeah, yeah. I could see that being successful, or at least, you know, uh, yeah, I could see people engaging in it, you know. Um, so, so, yeah, Ben, you're on the Discord now, so if, if you want to organize that, you're doing <laughs> Hop <laughs> to it. Get, get get going on this. <laughs> how um, was the, how was this this conference? Because you just wrapped it up uh, last week, right? 
Yeah, I love this. It's like we have been on the show, and he's the one. Yeah, he interviews you. I'm being interviewed. Yeah, we did. I mean, it was it was really really good. It was. Yeah. There were there were downsides of it because of the way it came about. Um, You know, we were planning to do the show. I mean, the next event like next Thursday or Friday. But when GDC started imploding, we moved it up and merged it with Meet to Match's on-site event because they power our event as well. Mm-hmm. So on the upside, we had like 700 people that were you know, interested in going. On the downside, a lot of them, I want to say a lot, there were a annoying number of them who, for whatever reason, stopped checking emails or didn't look, you know, at the updates. But when everything switched from offline to online, it's like I would literally send people meeting invites and it says location Skype with my Skype name. And I would get a response back. It's like, well, as you know, the coronavirus is, is in San Francisco, and so we're not going to be traveling yeah. to the show. But can we do a, a, a meeting on Skype? Like, yes, that's exactly what I just fucking sent you. It's like, what, yeah. did, what part of this didn't you get? And yeah. so we had a lot of people, myself included. I think I ended up with 25 meetings and 17 meetings pending which meant the person on the other side of it neither accepted nor declined the meeting, AKA Mm -hmm. they didn't even look, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that was one of the headaches of the whole thing. Um, But it it was more a factor of, we basically took people who were expecting an onsite event and despite how many times we emailed them and notified them that everything was going online and they didn't have to do anything different, it was just going to be online, yeah. people didn't read the damn emails, basically. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I suppose it's like uh, people going to GDC for the first time. They don't make, they, they miss a lot of things. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it's just the, it, the online version of that. It, it is. I mean, because it, it, we were talking <clears throat> on the last show about how overwhelming these shows can be. Yeah. If you've never been to one. Yeah. And that's a reality of all of them. It's, it's just like you take a look at it and it's like, okay, wait, where, where do we even start? Yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, Andy, you said we had a question. Yeah, um, it's from Kick Alley on Twitch. What's the feeling oh, here? Hey. What's the What's Hello. the feeling here Hello. about launching and promoting an open beta of a new mobile health app that can actually help users stay healthy because it uses mixed reality, where the player kicks a soccer ball on their mobile screen using their own foot. No monetization, so it's about helping our fellow man, not money right now. So I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) The problem you're going to face is getting people to download it because so many other people are doing that right now. Um, it, It would become... A, you need to use it as a vehicle for marketing. It's like, I'm, I want to help people too. Uh, you know, I am all about it. Let's help where we can. But at the same time, we have to realize that there, you, you got to have something going on otherwise too. So if you take the app and you put it out there for free and you market it as, because that's a good angle, 
is look, we know you don't have room. You know, basically, I mean, look, ben, Ben's in a place in LA and my living room is probably bigger than his whole apartment, but it, it's a, you've got to be able to exercise. You've got to be able to stay healthy. I mean, shit, I need to do that on a daily basis here in my office, even without a killer virus running around, but make sure you have something in there that's going to, you know, at least point people to what you're doing in terms of other games or, you know, promote the company in general. The good news is, yes, you can absolutely get out there and, and help people right now, but the, the bad news is there's a ton of other people trying to do the very same thing. And I'm, I'm struggling to really envision this particular app from like a, a user experience perspective. Um, you know, if the, if the question is really specifically about, do I think this app uh, is one worth creating? I, I would say that personally, I would be very... Created. <laughs> uh, well, maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Maybe people are using it. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time envisioning it and, and, and understanding how it would be uh, something someone would engage with for very long. And I think that's, you know, my chief complaint about most augmented reality apps out there is, uh, is that they're gimmicky. And so, you know, you might be interested by it for a few minutes, but if you're not going to engage with it for much longer, um, because it's, because it's, you know, requires you to hold your phone up in front of yourself. I, I don't know, um, how much I would expect people to use it. So, I mean, another thing she, she just mentioned, it's already up on Apple and Google. So it's already, been, you don't have to put any development resources into it, so to speak, because mm -hmm. it's already there, mm -hmm. but you know, I agree making it, God, I hate using this word, but you know, if you <laughs> gamify it and you add objectives and things to do. I mean, let's, let's face it. A lot of these things exist and continue to persist due to the fact that there's shit to collect, you know? And so Pokemon Go is, is the extreme example of that, but that's also a, you know, billion dollar franchise on top of it. But, yeah. you know, if you give the user a reason to come back the next day, that's where, it will benefit. I mean, that's the reality of, of this and everything else though. You know, it's a matter of creating that, um, that urgency to check in every day, you know, and whether you do that through challenges or quests or objectives or collectibles or, or whatever it is, you, and this goes for, you know, not only the soccer game, but but any kind of, like you said, AR game, a lot of them come off as gimmicky. But if you don't have engaging content, you can't expect the same gameplay mechanic over and over and over to continue to attract people because people don't have that kind of attention span. They they play it and they're like, oh, this is cool. Let's go play it again. Let's go play something else or let's do, let's do something else. But you've got to have those mechanisms in there that's gonna force them to come back every day. Would you agree? Well, I, I mean, you're you're talking about you're talking about gamification strategies, right? Things like uh, like achievements and scores and leaderboards and you know a, a lot of a lot of things that have become uh, fairly standard tools for scratching these itches for people in terms of mm -hmm. motivations. Um, which I agree uh, do tend to, to help with, you know, getting people to engage and return to uh, some sort of an experience. But the, it's the core mechanic of this that 
I am unsold on. And admittedly, I haven't, it sounds like there's a specific app that you're talking about and, and I may not, I simply may be unfamiliar with it and therefore, you know, not understanding it properly. But my experience would be as a soccer player, uh, AR soccer of any form sounds really, really unsatisfying because A, I don't believe that an AR app, a modern AR app is going to have enough sophistication to be able to really, um, satisfyingly recreate the experience of kicking a soccer ball and B, uh, you know, there are certain physical elements of kicking a soccer ball that, you know, if you don't have those because you're kicking a imaginary soccer ball, it's not really there. It's going to be really hard to make satisfying for anyone who actually plays soccer. Um, but maybe, maybe that's not the audience. Maybe you're just, I don't know, maybe you're trying to give something to people who aren't soccer players or something. So game court, court game loop aside. Yeah. Helping people, and providing an outlet right now is good. Sure. You just have to make sure that either, like Ben says, you're going to consistently engage them day in and day out. And maybe it's not, I mean, it, it could very well be that there's not really a, soccer players themselves aren't gonna see a benefit from it, but other people might. And that's something that we don't know. That's just, yeah. depends. That, that comes down to your daily and weekly and monthly retention rates. But um, my point is you don't rely on we're helping people to stay ha active in their home as your sole marketing hook. You know, there's got to be something more in there because so many other companies are doing that right now. You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck finding a publisher and more remember it's discord.gg slash indie game business this list of things that we wanted to talk about and now I forgot what they were. All right, so all right, look at your, from your side, Ben. You're, sure. You work with a development studio. How have things changed in the last two weeks for you all? What What's better? What's worse? What have y'all done to adapt? Well, to, uh, to be fair, like I said earlier, I, I wrapped a contract on 4th or something like that of, of March and so I have not been working with the oh. studio during this period of time so so i don't have uh, a specific you know like oh this is what i've noticed it's changed a lot other than that i've seen 
a to my pleasant surprise work is continuing you know there's there's relatively little in terms of uh things getting shut down and people getting laid off for our industry i mean that has happened i'm sure but but i haven't heard about that happening on a widespread basis and i know teams are trying to move to this sort of distributed development uh remote development type of um work environment and you know there are certain things that 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 brings with it in terms of uh you know not only the technology that's involved but also i think how you um try to communicate and coordinate and and operate in a distributed digital environment and a lot of it has to do with um you know video conference calls you know so in terms of i mean because that's another Good point. You said you had wrapped a contract. I didn't know you meant the contract I was thinking of. Um, so what are you doing on your side as now like a, a freelance producer? What are you doing I'm, to? I'm, well, you know, I, I, uh, I had been talking to, uh, you know, because the way as a freelance producer, I have like a vendor type of relationship a lot of the time with uh, with companies that will hire me um, either for a specific period of time or for a specific project to, you know, uh, manage and oversee. I've been talking to uh, companies, you know, potential client companies uh, before the coronavirus thing got out of hand. It has definitely created enough chaos that it has slowed down those conversations and in terms of people saying like, hey, I'm, I'm working on figuring out how to get my entire team working remotely and shutting down my office and, you know, still trying to close deals and stuff. So those conversations have slowed down, but the good news is that they're continuing to happen. And um, there do seem to be quite a few companies that are, if not continuing as they had planned, even ramping up as a result of this, uh, you know, the, the crazy things that are going on in the world right now. And I think we're going to see a lot more ramping up. I mean, yeah. and I've told a couple of people, and I don't know if I've, we've been live since I heard this, but I talked to a publisher earlier this week, and they've seen a 400% increase in sales, and they haven't done anything yeah. different. No yeah. no change to marketing at all. Yeah. Well, just 400%. think about it. Think about it. Like, it's, 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 a, it's the same version of what you're seeing, or you're going to see on any kind of video streaming platform, like a Netflix or something like that, right? Like, you're stuck at home. People are, more people are at home with less to do. And video games are one of the primary diversions and distractions that people will turn to when stuck at home. And that's just a, that's just a classic increase in demand, right? Like demand goes up uh, and, you know, you need to increase supply in order to meet it. And um, that's I think you're going to see that is, is like, hey, a bunch of the games that people play are really only fun once and once you played them it's time to go find another game you know and and then uh, that's more people needing to go buy and download more games you know well and, and with more revenue coming in we're seeing publishers who had you know previously said okay look we're full for the year you know we're not yeah. looking for anything until next year now going well, you know maybe we can put another game out in q3 q4 yeah you know let's see what see what's out there um but it it, it sounds as it sounds to me like it's even a better opportunity for folks like you and i who have done remote work before and this isn't like my daily life hasn't changed Mm -hmm. I mean, I still get up in the morning, eat breakfast, and, and do that commute of about 
10 yards to the office. Mm-hmm. The difference is I don't have to take my son to school anymore. And it's in, in return, I have to educate him somewhere along the line. Um, and I will say if there are any end of year exams focused around uh, building 90s and Fortnite and, you know, accuracy along those lines, he's going to do very well. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this has created an opportunity for, you know, folks like you, freelance producers, when those teams come to you and they're like, we don't know how to get our team working online remotely well, that's where folks like you and I can go, oh, we can help you do that. You know, we've been doing that for years. Um, It's like everything else. There's going to be changes, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that in my experience, there's nothing uh, about game development that requires that it happen co-located right like uh you absolutely and there's plenty of examples of games that have been developed this way that are developed uh you know either partially or entirely distributed um as a producer i always prefer to have my team co-located or at least um portions of the team because i think that there are uh real uh, valuable intangibles that come out of that that are harder to replicate in a distributed environment. Um, I do think How? that you can, well, so the big thing you get in game development, right? Like if you want specifics, but like the, the big thing that you get when you have a team in the same place is, is the sort of random and emergent solutions that can, that can happen in real time that don't happen anywhere near as quickly and and maybe missed entirely when people aren't sitting in the same room with each other. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, that point where one person finds something, a bug or whatever it is that's confusing or frustrating or whatever. And and in the office, you would just turn to the guy next to you and be like, Hey, what the fuck is, Hey, you over here, what do you, you know, like, what do you think of this asset? Do you think this looks good? Right. And, and, and people have this sort of like creative energy that comes about. Whereas when you're distributed, that's harder unless everybody's like logged into the same video chat all day long. Right. Which brings its own challenges and, and downsides to it. Um, so yeah. here's my counter argument. How sure. much of that time is recovered because you're not sitting in stupid fucking meetings all the time? Well, and, and I wouldn't presume to be able to tell you definitively, and it probably depends a lot on exactly how you're doing things, not to mention the fact that you get back, in some cases, one to two hours worth of commuting time out of your day that you can potentially be putting all or most of into actually being productive at the office. So um, it's hard to quantify, for sure. Uh, but... You know, one of the things that, as a producer, I've learned about um, communication, and this gets exacerbated the further people are away from each other geographically, because time zone issues begin to become a problem. Is um, is is turnaround time on a communication? If it, like when when I'm working with a team that's in say China or um, Eastern Europe or something like that, where there's almost no overlap between my time in the office and their workday, um, you can get, uh, you know, it, it becomes really hard to get a question answered because you, it's like throwing something over the fence and then waiting for someone in another place to answer. And then that comes back to you and you effectively get it the next day, get your answer that you're yeah. looking for. And so even simple pieces of conversation dramatically slow down. You throw in language barriers, which tend to accompany those kinds of geographical differences. And you, you may lose 
several days because it turns out the person didn't understand the question correctly when you asked it. And so it's like, you ask a question, they get it there next day, they misunderstand it, they send you the wrong answer, you realize they sent you the wrong answer, you <laughs> clarify it back to them. It's like fucking three days later, right? Um, and I'll, I'll give you, so I'll give you one one production tip that I learned <laughs> the hard way for it sounds funny but it is not funny when you're dealing with it in the, in the moment believe me um and you're trying to hit deadlines and get things done and you realize that your partners in china misunderstood your question yesterday and you have to clarify it today and your best chance of getting a decent answer is going to come tomorrow what do you mean so, you added multiplayer <laughs> <laughs> so i'll tell you one thing that you know, uh, uh, one solution that I I implemented on a project last year um, for that exact issue, uh, which which is going to also make you laugh, but you'll realize the the importance of it. We were working on a project with a Chinese company, and the Chinese company had literally zero people at it who spoke any English, and. Uh, obviously, uh, my Chinese is uh, also totally zero. So um, the good news was I had uh, some junior production people at my company who were Chinese and or Chinese American and were able to translate. But these same problems existed, and and they're exacerbated by the fact that. Um, I was now com communicating through translators to my developer, right? Like I would have, they, they might have a question that they would send over in Chinese and I would need to figure out what they were asking, respond to it in English and get that information back to them in Chinese in a way that was effective. And the only people handling that communication, the intermediaries were junior, like associate producer level type of uh, professionals. And so... Um, what I would, what I got in the habit of doing was I would get into the office first thing in the morning and I would have an email from China that would have the latest round of questions that needed to be answered in Chinese. Because I was sufficiently embedded in the project, I was usually able, if I just had that translated by machine translation, you know, Outlook's built-in uh, automated translation system, I could usually get that into English in a form that I could understand what they were asking. And then because they were off flying by that point, I knew I had the rest of my work data. And so I would uh, figure out the answer to answers to the questions they were asking over the course of my workday in English. And then what I realized, what I did at first was I would send that English response to one of my Chinese uh, associate producers, they would translate it, and then they would send it to China. And what I, what I was finding was that what was coming back the next day from China was not right, usually because my own teammate in the process of translating into Chinese had translated it in such a way that it lost some of its meaning to the the audience that I was trying to get. So the change that I made was I then had, I, I broke that up and I, I would send it to my, my associate producer, one of my two associate producers, I would have them translate it into Chinese. Blind, the other person was blind to what was in the English. I didn't copy it to my other Chinese uh, speaker. Okay, okay. And then I, I thought for a second then, you meant they were actually blind. No, they, and I'm like, yes, they're not that's literally blind. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't see what I had sent to, say, let's call them uh, associate producer A. Associate producer A translated it into Chinese and then sent it to a associate producer B, who then translated it out of Chinese and sent back to me in English what they thought. Associate producer A. That allowed me to vet 
the translation of a, of, of associate producer A through a different Chinese speaker and confirmed that the message had gotten through clearly? If so, then I had China, associate producer A go ahead and send the email to our partners in China. If not, it gave me the opportunity to correct the translation here before the end of the day and clarify it before it went to China. So that extra step of an internal, like a blind internal audience that was getting that content before it went out of the house allowed me to eliminate a lot of these, these really frustrating experiences where the, 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 it would turn out we'd put in all this effort and then we got back garbage the next day because the translation had been bad or because there had been a misunderstanding. Sometimes that make it. Wow. That sounds like a so, lot. It, it was, it was absolutely. <laughs> you like, need a I native English speaker and a yeah. native Chinese speaker. To translate in and out. Native Chinese speakers. Who also spoke English to do this. Wow. Yeah. So, so if that situation starts raising its head again, what would you do to resolve it? Hmm. I, I mean, the, the, there are a couple of things you can do that would help. The first is if anyone at the Chinese company spoke English, right? Like even just one person at that company who had a strong grasp of English would have made a big difference because then my ability to communicate with them directly would have improved dramatically. Right. I, I, as it was, if we, I mean, you, you think that sounds bad. You should have seen what conference calls were like, because um, we, we would get into cases where we felt like we needed to resolve something that was complicated or needed to be resolved quickly and in real time. And um, I would, I would get on a call. There a question would be asked. I would answer it to my associate producer in Chinese. And then I would sit for like 15 minutes while they went back and forth in Chinese and I had no idea what anybody was saying. I was like, oh, that's definitely a lot more conversation than I, you know, I just I asked had, how you were doing. That's I responded in 30 seconds and I've been sitting here for 15 minutes while they're trying to clarify what this is. And I have no idea whether or not the information that's going back and forth is good or clear or what. Um, so simply having one English speaker on the other end of that line would have been the single most valuable thing that could have happened. Otherwise I think, you do have to kind of do it like that. And and then where things started to get uh, better for me was when we more senior, you know, in the absence of that, we hired a more senior producer on my side, more like a, like a mid to senior level producer who was reporting to me, who also spoke Chinese. And I was able to just delegate to her, go have that conference call because I can trust that you're going to be able to <laughs> represent what needs to be. Jeez. I'm adding any value to it. Like I would be, I would be on a line for two hours starting at 7 p.m. because that's you know 7 a.m. or something like that, and, and you know, and I would be on the line at home for two hours and and probably have a grand total of 15 minutes of of, of time that I understood what was being said in the conversation. It was one of the most painful experiences as a producer I've ever had. And, and you can't like trust like how Skype has the translator, you know, mm -mm. because no. uh, already the closed captioning on that kind of stuff is terrible anyways. Well, the, but the other thing is that Chinese is, um, it's a symbolic language, right? And so there's nuance in the way that things are written and how they get translated that particularly when you're talking about things that are technical or that are specific to to a video game that might be, you know, effectively game-specific vocabulary or terminology, that 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 
automated translation is going to struggle with. Like I would, the way I was able to read the stuff that was machine translated that was coming into me was because I started to understand how the machine translation would would translate certain game terms into into words that definitely weren't what they were. At least I understood that's what they meant to the machine. Does that make any sense? Oh, for yeah. sure. I mean, so one of the lessons learned, and I don't know if you know you went out and and salt this third party development studio or if it's one of those like we frequently get where you're brought in this is the joy of those of us who freelance it's like you're brought into firefight it's like hey this project is not going well you fix it you know but that is one of the things that you absolutely have to have when you're doing remote work you know overseas contract work and we've been doing overseas contract work for 20 years and so you have to make sure that there's somebody that speaks the same language whether or not you speak chinese if you speak chinese then that's fine you speak english you speak chinese problem solved but you've got to make sure there's somebody on the other side who does it as well and a lot of times that gets brought out in the proposal stage you know if you're the publisher and you put the rfp out if the if the rfp comes back in english or horrible english or not in english at all you have an understanding of how the discussions are going to go from from here on out but yeah yeah, it's like once you're thrown into that it's like it's you know and it's it's funny because i've I've had this experience i've managed teams in india and i've managed and and i've worked with um, remote teams in, in places like London and even Eastern Europe. And, um, it, and the challenges have been different in each case. The language aspect is, is um, critical, but not sufficient, right? Like the, like the experience of working with an Indian developer for me was um, less painful than it was working with that in that Chinese example, um, but still brought with it its own set of challenges once you get past the language barrier, there are still um, other, there were still other cultural challenges. And, uh, you know, um, I, I found in working with it, with it, with the Indian developers that um, you still couldn't make the same kinds of assumptions about um, what needed to happen that I might've been able to with, um, uh, with a domestic developer. And, and, and when I worked with this team in, in London, I actually found, um, it was almost better in some ways than, uh, working with it, at least in, in some respects that you, you got real efficiencies because there were, um, there was so much clarity and understanding and, and there was, you know, maybe two hours of overlap in the morning when I would get into the office when they would still be there where we had enough, uh, shared understanding that I could I could get a brain dump from them in terms of what had happened in their day at the end of their day and then I could say great I'll take this document and I'll run with it and then I could spend my day working on it, it was like a google doc or something like that and by the end of the day shoot off a quick summary of where I'd left things I go home and then they would arrive at my midnight or whatever pick it up and carry it forward and by the time I got back into the office in the morning there'd been effectively a whole nother day's worth of work and progress made and you can get to the point where you have this sort of like continuous or virtually continuous uh work happening on something which is the the theoretical advantage of of that kind of distributed um approach but it all comes down to the effectiveness of your communication if you're if your people are tightly in sync with each other and able to hand things off seamlessly it's like great now we're working around the clock um but if if not then it can be the opposite and it can be like oh it takes two days to get an answer to a question 
Yeah, and you'll see a lot of outsourced studios, especially in India and, and China as well, who pitch it as this is a benefit. It's like you're going to have yeah. a 24 hour development cycle, you know, because exactly what you just said. But the reality is, if you don't have the communication to facilitate yeah. that, it's not going to be. Yeah. Reasonable. And you, and you, you know, and, and the time zones become a major factor in both directions because. If the communication is there, you you can be real efficient in an hour or two, and then take advantage of that. But if the you know if if not, then the time zones are working actively against you because it's so hard to get clarity on things. Unless you you know start working their hours, which is uh, <laughs> which yeah. I mean, and I know and I know folks that do that. You know they yeah. they've worked remote for so long, and with a U.S. company or with a European company or however that they literally just start their day revolves around the same time that you know their clients does yeah. um, if you're if you have a family situation that can accommodate that uh by all means um i don't know if that's as practical the more home life responsibilities people tend to tend to get you know yeah. it, and, and you have a little one so you know you're i do yeah, you're, you're for a while anyway. I don't know if you're just sleeping through the night yet, but mine's oh, yeah. eight and he doesn't do it. So um, the <laughs> it's uh, you're either going to be up anyway, or you really want that sleep when you yeah. can get that sleep. Um, this has been awesome. I love I love getting on here and, and just absolutely ripping. So Ben and I were like going back and forth for the last couple of days, going, "Are we going to talk about this, or we're we going to talk about yeah. that?" And then you know, how we've been going for an hour and just basically talking about the industry. So what do you think we're going to see in three or four months? How, if, if you had to, and we're all guessing, because who, who the hell knows, but how do you see this situation affecting the industry six months, 12 months from now? Well, I think, you know, change happens at the margins, right? Like there, there will be, there is no single universal, uh, switch it's going to get flipped and everybody's going to go back to work or everybody's going to just stay home there's going to be some marginal change and i think that what you'll see is that this event will pull uh people in the remote direction some percentage of of developers and teams that have had to adapt to this reality will embrace it and will stick with it whether it is entirely or partial right they might it might be a team that just decides you know what forget it we can save on that expensive lease we're going to just keep doing this from home because this works great um i think that's likely to be true with smaller more indie teams you know for whom that's a less disruptive change um and and some you'll find some bigger and mid-sized companies may go you know what this this has its advantages but it is not um ideal and so we're gonna just let people take one to two days working from home moving forward and we don't all need to be in the office five days a week and we're going to be more flexible and accommodating for people and you know some percentage of companies and teams will do that and then there will be the percentage that just goes look we have this beautiful huge office we really love the synergy that comes out of um being in it it's convenient we're gonna go back to work and nothing's gonna change at all from where we were three months ago so um you know it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a spectrum of of changes but on net some there will be some degree of gravity that pulls some percentage of teams towards more distributed and remote work as a result of this. I think. Do you think now's a good time to release a game as an indie dev? Absolutely. I, I, I would be if I was in um production on something that had a shot of releasing in the next two months, I would be 
accelerating to try and do that because I think that demand is going to be higher right now, particularly the further we get into this, the more games that were slated for launch will have launched and people will have played them and will be like, okay, great. I'm looking for something. And, yeah. I don't, it's like I, I have zero expectations that we're going to see a PS5 and a Microsoft Series X at Christmas at this point, you know, because it, I just don't. I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that yet because it, it's gonna. I think you'll probably see fewer units, you know, because China's probably going to have some disruption of the supply chain as a result of all of this. They but... had a disruption for the last two months. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that they're starting to get back to work from everything that I've heard, and um, and I think that there's so much incentive now to get get these products out there for people um, who are going to be stuck at home. That uh, you know, I, I, I you know, you could be right, but I wouldn't say zero chance that we see them. Yeah, yeah, zero chance may be a little extreme, but I, I think we're going to see. You're not going to have the install base you were expecting. Let's just phrase it like Yeah, that. I agree with that. I, I agree with that. I think that the supply chain is going to be affected at some level. And so, you know, there are people who are planning to spend money, you know, on, on big AAA titles, but they're not going to now. And it's like one of the things I'm curious about, and I don't even know, how do these teams at, you know, that are making Call of Duty, you have hundreds of people, how has this affected the pipeline for those games. I mean, there's, we're talking about companies who sometimes run software to make sure that you're not taking art assets out off of their, you know, property. And now everyone has to work remote. And so how's it going to affect launch titles? I mean, are we going to see a limited supply of, of PS5s and like one game, you know, is it, that's the curious. Usually, I'm the one who tells the indie devs, do not, for any reason, launch in Q4. Mm. This year, I'm like, I don't, you, you got to look and see what's actually going to make it to market, you know, because I don't know. I can't, well, I, and, and you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to make too bold of, of predictions about this because I'm not really a marketing person. I'm a production person, right? It doesn't, we're on the internet. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I know. But, you, know, you don't have I, to be, you don't I hate have to be wrong, right, man. I you just need to be wrong. loud. You know, that's the... Uh, I, you know, I think, yeah, I think... Um, I think that the, my, my, my perspective is that the, the launch quarter in a new console generation, um, the volume of sales, both on the hardware and software side, relative to... Uh, the volume of sales that's happening on the previous generation is kind of a drop in the bucket. Like I just, I, I think that you know there there wouldn't even if nothing had changed, there wouldn't be enough Xbox, you know, one X, whatever it's called, and and enough Alpha uh, Six enough, Niner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. I, it made me over at Microsoft. It still got me confused, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, but no, PS5, that's a pretty straightforward one. Like, I don't think there would be enough PS5s in the market by December to really change the landscape for PC and um, and uh, and PS4 uh, dramatically this year. But I'm not enough of an expert on the marketing side to say that with absolute certainty. But I think, you know, the first holidays, you, what, you move one or two million units, you've had a really great launch, you know, or something like that. I, I don't know that they... I don't know what the numbers are. It's been five, six years or something like that, but that, that's my, my feeling on it. 
it, it's it's this is the beauty of, of, of having a podcast and streaming so you can make bold predictions and if they're right you get to go see i told you and then if they're wrong you're like why you the just... hell were you listening to me i do a podcast what the, yeah. what the hell yeah i mean it's, yeah. i agree well, on the indie side you know it, it's speaking of oh Speaking of bold, can I can I go back to bold predictions then for a oh, second? Yeah, because yeah. I, I bold, so the shit out of whatever you want. I boldly predicted just a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw. I wrote an article and put out. Um, and my bold prediction is actually that, that if you want to look for something that's going to have a good holiday season and it's really going to benefit from everything that's going on, I think unambiguously is VR. And and I yeah. think um, I think that. Uh, VR, both as a potential solution for, you know, uh, remote social, you know, whether it's conferencing or social stuff, I think it it really can add value uh, in that department. But um, the the reason I, I bring it up is because I actually I think that the Half Life Alex launch that I, happened. I haven't seen any numbers on that yet. That's what I'm googling while you're talking. Oh, the numbers exactly are just... the numbers are amazing. It's, it's it's already the highest rated PC game of the year. It's, no, no, it's not uh, rating. I'm talking about how many numbers it sold. Well, so I'm getting to it. It's it, it's it's uh, already um, been one of the most uh, uh, you know highest concurrent user type of games on Steam. Um, it's doing very very well, and and that's completely wildly unsurprising, right? Like anyone who's old enough, like you and me, to understand the context of the Half Life franchise in the PC gaming universe, I think. Will will be unsurprised by the fact that that's a that's a an IP that there are almost there's almost nothing else that has the kind of uh, pent up passion as a Half Life uh, game can can expect to have, and so um, I think that my the the argument in my article that I wrote is that. Um, is that the the people who the reason that VR has struggled? I think I think that the reason that VR has struggled to take off has everything to do with mobile VR, and by that I mean, um, you know, the kinds of VR that was um, released as products by Samsung and Google two three years ago that relied on putting a phone into some sort of a plastic or cardboard shell in order to use, and that those experiences were so. Um, unsatisfying as uh, as VR experiences that the audience that you would normally expect to be the early adopters of the VR medium, the people who are willing to go drop a few hundred dollars on something, <clears throat> and if it's good, go tell their friends, did that, and they were unimpressed by it. They felt like they kind of wasted their money on <clears throat> Daydream or uh, Google Cardboard or, you know, Samsung Gear, you know, VR. And so they said, yeah, it's not that interesting. And, and and those were exactly the people that the medium needed in order to go and evangelize VR to the mass market. And those people happen to be hardcore gamers. And, and it takes an IP like Half-Life coming around for those people to go, okay, wait a minute, I need to give this another try because if Valve is saying it's worth my time and if Valve is saying it's worth the Half-Life IP, then I probably need to try it. And and what we're seeing is, you know, the- wait, Time out. In what world would the company who's making the damn game and the hardware not tell you it's worth your time? Well, because, well, it's a great question. It's a fair question, but, but Valve, the reason is because Valve- uh, has credibility, right? Valve's not going to squander its own reputation and and the Half-Life reputation 
on something that isn't really ready for prime time. And and the truth is that it is ready for prime time. And the people who are are playing it are being blown away by it as they as they should be. And I think that the other thing that's that's really important to remember is that there is a much more compelling product available now in the Oculus Quest, which is a $400 device that with a small cable can connect to your gaming PC and deliver Half-Life, uh, Alex. And and, it, and that, that wasn't available three years ago when, when the medium launched. And I just think you're going to see a lot of hardcore gamers saying, okay, I, it's time to get into VR now because I, there are hardware and software available that makes it uh, really, truly compelling. Counter argument being that the industry and gamers in particular are so thirsty and hungry for Half Life anything, you could nearly wrap a turd in a box and ship it with a Half Life thing, and people would still be like, "Ah, right." Which is, but that's not a counter argument. That's a that's in support of this, and it it so happens that the turd in the box is a really compelling turd. So now it's a really nice turd. turd. And, and, And I'm sitting here grinning because I just realized that I already have it in my library and didn't realize it because of circumstances but um what are you so, yeah. doing here right now you i don't be know i don't know why the hell i'm still talking now. to you it's like <laughs> i have to get the vibe out and get it like hooked up which is the bitch this is my complaint about vr and my son yeah. he's like dad can we play vr and i'm like oh my god ever yeah. to get set up it's a pain in the ass it may work or it may not so it's like i have to set time aside when he's not like Dad, can we VR? Dad, can we VR? To, to set it up, because otherwise he's like, oh my God, is it still ready? And I'm like, no, this is going to take a half hour for me to get, yeah. you know, set up. And that's, so, where, yeah. and that's where the Quest, I think, helps again as well. Quest is really helps uh, diminish the friction involved with, I, with getting I, into it. I'm a big fan. I agree with you. I mean, I think one of the big winners that's going to come out of this is is VR. And I'm already seeing it on the publisher side as well as the developers. I had a team that I love and respect very much come to me several weeks ago before all this stuff went like ape shit. And they're like, hey, we've got this game for VR. And I'm like, all right, so what's your budget? And he's like three quarters of a million dollars. And I went, nobody is going to pay three quarters of a million dollars for an indie VR game. And then they started, I mean, this team is also, you know, populated by some of the smartest individuals I know, like Mensa smart people. And he started breaking down all the numbers and I went, okay, yes, all right, that makes sense. You know, I, I can understand it now, but you, yeah. we need to do something about that sticker shock because the publisher is going to look at it and go, no, I'm not paying 750 grand for, you know, a, a, a VR game from an unknown studio who hasn't done a vr game before um but i do know we're like way over time and you have things that you need you have a call coming up i believe uh, uh actually I, I don't i'm happy to hang as long as you want but if you want to wrap up, uh i've had a great time with this conversation and i'd be happy to continue or, or come back anytime you want I, what's your time schedule look like andy i'm good all right let's keep going let's keep I going have, um, all right, so we got a question that just came in. So Nightwolf's trying to make sure that we don't go anywhere. What about the Switch, Ben? I've read that it's almost sold out fully anywhere. I've so, I've read that it is sold out everywhere. So, what what does this do for Switch games? I think I mean I think it helps. I think it's help. It's got to be helping. I think the Switch is an amazing platform, and um, you know it has. Uh, I think it has. I, I I don't know why this would help the Switch more than it would help the PlayStation or the Xbox, but you know I would expect to see sort of a proportional positive impact on all of the consoles. And um, 
you know, Switch included. Because I think there are more periphery players. I'm going to coin my own little word here. You know, the core gamers, we already have a Switch. We already have an Xbox. We already have a PlayStation. But now you're seeing more sure, that's and more a great point. Mul multiple switches like we have two switches here yeah we have the one that is you know on on fortnite a lot and then we have mine that i bought when i went to the conference in india because you're not sticking me on 26 hours of flights without something to occupy my brain mm -hmm. but you know, you're seeing, especially with Animal Crossing as well. Like my wife has put in more hours on the Switch in the last three days than she's put on yeah. the two years before this. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And so much as the Switch represents, excuse me, the Switch represents the um, more of the three consoles. Uh, I would expect the Switch to benefit because if you're the kind of person who has been sort of sitting on the sidelines of console gaming for some time um and you're like okay well now i have to be at home i might as well go ahead and get into gaming a little bit more i think you're going to go uh for the least expensive and most casual friendly of the consoles and the switch probably fits that description so it it, it probably would benefit even more than than microsoft or sony do under the circumstances my so, so here's the, the the dark side of that coin there are so many games on the Switch right now. Even if you go on the, well, I mean, obviously everybody's buying through the the Switch store, the eSwitch, whatever they call it. But it's the matter of making your stand out and pop up to the top. So yeah, it's going to see a gigantic boost in in sales, in install base. But it's a matter of you still got to make sure you're doing what you need to do on the marketing side to make the game visible. That's the yeah. problem. Yeah. What's next? So we get all geared up to go for like another 10 minutes and then we run out of stuff. Animal Crossing! <laughs> I haven't played it yet. Is it, worth it? it? Is it worth the 60 bucks? So here's my complaint. When you, I don't like the fact that you can only have one island Per game, and before the game came out, I was like, I don't give a shit. You know, we we have, you know, I I play it, my wife plays it, my son plays it, and we're all on the same island. The problem, from a game design perspective, is that because my wife started first, and she's the one that picked the island and named it, and she gets all of the story that goes along. It's like mm. my son and I are kind of like glorified visitors on the island. You know, when sounds Tom, like real life, Jay. Yeah, I know it really does. <laughs> you know, when, when Tom Nook and his like regime, and you got you cannot trust a raccoon. I don't know. Is, is that is is it racist? If I if if is that speciest? Species. No, knows you can't trust a raccoon. They're, you you got, got a, a raccoon who owns the airline, all the land. All the infrastructure, including he owns the phone company that you use, um, you are rewarded by buying things only from him and his kids by reward miles that can only be redeemed for his shit. And by the way, he owns the bank that you're... There's a whole lot of shadiness going on with this Nook regime in the game, but... <laughs> 
the reality is she gets all the story stuff. You know, and the rest of us just kind of like, and, and we can't even like contribute. You know, when when Tom tells you, yeah, we want we need more people to come to the island, and you go get more people to come to the island, then he's like, oh yeah, and you have to build their house and and make all their furniture. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing, Tom? But you know, fucking she Tom, does, yeah, fucking Tom, look, she, you know, gets the. <laughs> Why'd you get a divorce? She took the bad island. Uh, <laughs> she. But we don't get to see any of that. You know, she just like turns around and, and, and Julie's like, oh yeah, by the way, we need like four wooden blocks and 20 iron nuggets. And... Uh, Alright, I have a confession to make. I don't play Animal Crossing. What Why? What is it? Why do you like it? What am I missing? Tell me, what is the game of Animal Crossing? <sighs> Did you play Stardew Valley? No. Oh God, dude, you should. Anyway, it's especially right now. Uh, is, it a, a, is it a city builder? Is it like no? Is it Farmville no. with cute animals? What is the What is the game? It's, it's a. Did you ever play Harvest Moon? No, you're seeing a pattern here. Oh, I, you're I, fucking I, killing I, me here, Ben. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's a excellent escape. It's not competitive you have pretty much free run over an you know in in this case an island in Stardew Valley it's it's a farm but it's not like you're constantly racing against a score and if you know you you decide that you're going to take three years to pay off your house and upgrade your house, that's fine. If you want to spend your time fishing or chopping down trees, that's fine. It's very open-ended. Yeah, and somebody said it's it's a farming and village simulator. And it is, but it's even not the point like, um, what's the big farm simulation game? Farm, maybe farm. it's called Farm. No, not Farmville. The the one that has like a damn esports goes along with it, and it might be Farm Simulator. Um, oh, but it's, farming simulator. There is a farming simulator. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, that one has an actual esports league in in Europe, but it's more of it's relaxing. It's it's you know you we always talk about games as escapism, and especially right now where people are stressed. It's like, I lost my job, you know, or my job has been basically shut down. You know, we have friends who own own a restaurant and it's like, they, but they can't do anything right now, but they still have rent that their landlord wants them to pay. And it's like, well, you know, tough shit, but you, you have these, you know, stresses in life that has been made worse in the last couple of months, but games like, Animal Crossing and and Stardew Valley, they give you a true escape. It's not like I'm escaping to play Doom, where I have to, you know, have my reflexes running and be, and I'm totally amped up and and you're shooting everything. It it really is a relaxing mechanic. I mean, and it's probably the type of game that I could compare most to. You know, you come home from work and you just kind of want to unwind and read a book. It's it's mm-hmm. that sort of experience. Not like a, <laughs> well, I mean, and, and honestly, when I first first heard of Stardew Valley, I'm like, why the hell would I want to do that? But then I started playing it, and I was like, oh my god, this is so awesome. So 
it it is something and you know julie and i played the other animal crossings i've never played harvest moon but we played animal crossings years ago we didn't play the 3ds one because we never got 3ds's but it um it, it, it it's something that is just it, it's it's almost pure escapism and you know there's a reason why gamestop fault tooth and nail to stay open last friday Mm-hmm. declaring themselves an essential business, essential which, business. You know, even i got a huge laugh out of they're, but... they're not even an essential business in the games industry <laughs> uh, it's the best 60 dollars you can spend so it's basically do i want to get 60 bucks in toilet paper or do i want to get this Andy, wash your ass, okay? You know, this is not, toilet paper is not the end of the world right now. Oh, I there know, I know. entire cultures that don't have toilet paper. I know, um, and I know a lot of people that have been getting bidets. I've been wanting a bidet for years now anyways. See, you know, now, now you got a chance to get one. But it, it's a, it, it had the Animal Crossing, at least the your, the British retail numbers have come out, and it was... Far and away, I want to say like 3x the biggest opening they ever had for an Animal Crossing game, but its day one sales eclipsed the day one sales of every other Animal Crossing game in history combined. And you know, there, there's a reason. You know what, 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 what? When you talk about British uh, game records, it made me think of something that's a bit of a tangent to the Animal Crossing conversation, but something on which I might have a little bit more perspective to con- contribute. Which is, you were asking about what. A lot of the conversation in this call has been about sort of who we think the winners will be in this, you know, as a result of this whole situation. And, um, you know, that's a little bit insensitive to talk about considering how tragic the situation is in in so many ways. But it's also an, an inevitable reality that there will be some companies that benefit yeah. more than others. Um, and, uh, you know, what we haven't mentioned, which uh, now that I think about it, I think probably i would be very interested to know what is happening but i i would be unsurprised if sports games are big winners as a result of this because i think um you know obviously real sports and whether playing or watching them is largely uh not an option as a result of these lockdowns and the next best thing and 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 frankly a, a very very compelling and satisfying alternative to both of those things are sports games which you know, like I'm a, I'm a hardcore FIFA player already. And I could imagine something like FIFA having a huge influx of, of people who are like, well, this is the only closest thing I can get. It's the only soccer I can find. And, and, and whether it's watching people play or, or playing um, that you'll see those games benefiting in particular because, because the, the real world all shut down. I see, I, I'm curious as that too, from the different angle, you know, because a lot, uh, there's a reason that Madden launches in August of every year. That's when sure. football season starts. Sure. I don't, I don't know when soccer season starts because soccer, soccer was in full swing uh, up until a couple weeks ago. So, for everybody that goes out and buys a copy of the game because it's the only exposure they can get to the sport right now. I would hypothesize there is somebody who doesn't go and get the game because it's not being marketed to them as much. If and so let me let's let's use Madden as the example because I'm much more familiar with that. 
I have no problem on FIFA playing last year's version or the year before. I love the game mechanics in FIFA. I enjoy playing it. I don't know who plays for who or what team. I usually end up being the, you know, Tottenham Hotspurs just because of the Jason Sudeikis videos, you know, years ago. That's that's how I pick my Premier League team. But if the NFL doesn't go back on time, why does it matter if you have Madden 21 versus Madden 20? Because you don't really know who's on the teams anyway. What's what's changed? So, well, for for the so for the people who were talking about who are soccer fans who suddenly have no sport to watch, um, I would say the the composition of the teams and the players is going to be a much bigger factor for them than it would be for someone like you who's not really a soccer fan, right? Like you're a FIFA fan, but you're not really a, a soccer fan. And uh, for someone like me who I would say is a pretty hardcore soccer fan. When I got into FIFA, which was relatively recent, it was probably about 2013 or something like that when I started getting into FIFA, um, I, you know, I was in the camp of sort of American soccer fans who had played my, the game my whole life. I really enjoyed the game, uh, the sport, I mean. And, and you know, I, I was a fan of our national team, as painful as that is. I, I you know, watch their games when they play and try to support I, them. I, I always watch it then. You know, I'm that player that watches during the Olympics and during the World Cup. Yeah. Yep, yep. And then and then you're like, yeah, great. So I like our I don't really know who anybody else is. What I found was when my friends started playing FIFA and I got into playing FIFA weekly, you know, with a group of buddies, um, it was only a matter of months before I had learned all of the players, all the teams and all the European leagues and and all of a sudden when we would play, we would do um seasons and we would have, we would so we'd play over the course of four Monday nights we would have six hour sessions where we would do a tournament. And at the beginning of that tournament, we would draft and transact players off of different teams in order to build teams that were exactly the way we want. And we go stats and try and find hidden gems who we thought were the players that we needed, build our own teams and then play out a, a season using our own custom versions of teams. And it added a tremendous amount of, uh, of fun and investment into that experience but it just comes with time as you as you play the game you just learn the players by osmosis it's like well i I just know who they are because i've had to either play against them or whatever and now and then and then guess what happens as a result of that now i now i watch champions league games on tv of european soccer because i know who all the players are in the real world right and and i think there are a, a, a pretty significant number i mean if you look at the rise of soccer in the united states over the course of the last 10 years which I think has been pretty incredible in terms of um, the shift yeah, in terms but of popularity. that's a low bar to hit. But it is, it is, but but it's but it's it's totally broken through now, Jay. I mean, like the the popularity of the sport is unlike anything it was ever, you know, before when I was, you know, in high school or you know, and even in the two thousand. You know, and see, I'm. I think I have a has weird perspective on it because I went to the University of North Carolina and and I was mm-hmm. there in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Right after you know Mia Hamm graduated, mm-hmm. and our women's team basically won every national championship. And then you yeah. go to the Olympics, and the team is basically the women that I was in college with, and that went to UNC, uh, and some women from probably an equal number of women from Notre Dame, and that's our U.S. team for years. That's who it was. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would I would watch it on that standpoint. 
and I do, you know, when you do international business for 20 years, I do sit back and go, where in the hell do our kid, my, my son absolutely loves playing soccer. I mean, yeah. he's, he's goalie. He loves it. That's all he wants to do. You know, spring leagues were coming up, but that's not going to happen right now. And But they didn't even have a league here. It was just like clinics. And he goes, I don't care. I want to go do that. Mm-hmm. And we see that in kids. And then somewhere like around middle school or high school, kids stop giving a shit about soccer in the U.S. And yeah. I don't know. Well, that's that. the point is that that's, that has always been the case. I mean, even since I, I was a kid in the 80s, Soccer was the most popular youth sport in America. It, yeah, just, it lends it. itself to youth sports. It's a, it's it, everybody gets to play. Um, it's very accessible. It, 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 it makes a lot of sense as a youth sport. It's really fun for that. What would happen would be that as the better players, the better athletes got into high school, um, with the in the absence of a pro league and in the absence of the sort of you know uh, commercial excitement that there is around sports like that particularly basketball and and football but to a lesser degree i think hockey and baseball our better athletes at the high school level would would go and gravitate towards those sports and they'd start getting passionate about watching those leagues and they would just lose their interest in soccer that has changed right like the soccer you know mls is uh profitable it's growing it's got um, uh, high audience numbers. I think it. I think it, at this point, it, it is a more popular sport by most metrics than either hockey or baseball. And um, hockey, I believe, but um, I think, US, I think if you in the U.S., you're saying if you the MLS? attendance numbers. I think if you looked at a lot of a lot of metrics, you'll find that it's a, it, it's very very competitive, if not not ahead of baseball. And and it has to do, I think, in no small part with FIFA. Like I I know a fairly significant number of people who've gotten into soccer because they played FIFA first as a great game. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, I know this game of soccer now because I've been playing the video game FIFA because it's a great game on its own merits. And now I'm much more interested in the sport. And and that goes hand in hand with, you know, um, bringing the, the premier league to NBC. So people can watch the top tier games every week in the mornings and, and a lot of other things that have happened in 10 years. But, um, you know the the sports huge now. Look at the look at the audiences for for the women's World Cup. For you know you can go to bars. I mean I don't know what it's like in North Carolina, but well, see it's big. Bars I mean in LA packed for Champions League games now. You know middle of the day. Well, I'm sure you can find them here. I don't know. I mean, but I I got curious and I just googled this up. So in 2019, average per game attendance. The NFL far and away, they have gigantic stadiums sure. and they only play once a week. MLB was number two, average attendance of 28,000. MLS was number three ahead of, like I said, hockey doesn't surprise me, ahead of the NHL and the NBA. Mm-hmm. How much of that, I mean, you can look at the NHL average and the NBA average and they're within 400 people of each other. That doesn't factor in popularity. That's all constricted by the size of the stadium. So in terms of popularity, though, that's what I'm trying to, um, that's what I'm curious about. But I mean, that's what I want to know. It's like when in a world where we're not having these sports on TV, is it a boon for the games or is it, you know, are we going to end up more people like, I don't need to get this year's, I have last year's and they haven't really you know, they haven't really changed. Well, I, I mean, I think, frankly, I think that um, 
you know, the idea of purchasing an annualized version of a sports game that's a mature franchise like FIFA and Madden, um, there there have been questions about that in my mind for a long time, right? Really what, you, you know, I mean, like the, when the new feature is like realistic blades of grass, you know, you're like, <laughs> this is a... This is a franchise that isn't really bringing a lot to it. And really what you're talking about is a subscription service. So you're getting roster updates. Right. And, um, and I think, you know, in, in a world where there's no real world rosters changing because the sport has been shut down. Um, it does beg the question of, you know, what the value of ongoing investment in the game is, but that is hopefully a, a very temporary situation. And for those people who are real fans, having the up-to-date rosters and, and more than the rosters, the up-to-date stats, right? Like that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about those protracted leagues that we would play and stuff was seeing um, the players in the game continue to have their stats updated in a way that reflected the realities of how they were playing and what their skill levels were, because that created opportunities for us when we were drafting players or, or creating these teams to say, Oh, I think this player is a rising star. I want to grab them and get them on my team and sit on them and watch their stats rise. And then I'll have them or, you know, make those kinds See, of decisions. I was just the opposite. Cause we used to do the same thing. And but I don't want my in-game player stats being affected by their real-world stats. At the beginning of the season, you know, when when I'm playing a series like you're talking about, I want my I don't know what you want to call it, starting stats, the coded stats, the ones that uh-huh. shift with the game. I want them locked day one of when I start the season. And yeah. then they change based on how the player plays in the game. If I'm playing and I've got, you know, a forward and whoever, and somebody slide tackles him and he breaks his leg, you've just made my game and the my player in the game horrible, and I had absolutely no control over that. Yeah, but I think that's that's the nature of, of it's like fantasy sports at that point, right? Like that, like that. That's it's the yeah, same. Yeah, but I'm not controlling them. In fact, what's the point of me playing and controlling these players and building them up, you know, natively through the game, if you're just going to oversee that with whatever's happening in the real world? Fantasy, I get. Well, for, I have no for control. One thing, over I mean, it. the the the, move, the the changes tend. I mean, injuries are an interesting one, but but the, the statistical changes tend to happen gradually. Over time, it's rare that you'll you know you won't see like a 85 player drop to 75 or something like that. You know they might drop from 85 to 83, and that can make a difference depending upon which stats have changed and stuff. But it 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 definitely to me it, it adds an element of fantasy football to it where you're like or fantasy sports in general where you're trying to say look do I do I think this player is a wise investment because there are factors that can happen outside of my control that can affect that. And, and that's fantasy sports, you know? Um, so it brings, it, it layers in, it's really a fantasy sports activity with a degree of, of user, a higher level of your control over it. Right. Like it's like if, it, it, you know, and which I've always thought would, you know, would be really fun would be to make a fantasy sports Madden game where we do everything is like fantasy. And then we have head to head matchups and we, actually play out our head-to-head matchups but our Isn't players that what they do with the card based thing that you have to buy now uh oh i don't even i hate that the ultimate team just yeah i hate ultimate team okay all right in, in all seriousness i do have to go um yeah i, yeah. I, I do need to call it and animal crossing's calling your name isn't it no i'm i'm afraid of what my eight-year-old has eaten and or done upstairs you know while we have uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, ben, this was 
fun. Yeah, it was awesome. great. And thank you. And we're do it again. Um, yeah, absolutely. Any, anything you want to share before we leave? If you are a developer or a publisher and you need someone to help come in and oversee your projects, call Ben. He's That's been what doing, I do. He's been doing this 20 years. Working remote is not going to affect him unless no one on your team speaks English. Then we discussed this earlier. But <laughs> aside from that, call Ben. Um, yeah, thanks very much. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jay. And uh, I'd be happy to come back just to say when. I got nowhere to be. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Anything else, Andy? Yeah, make sure. Andy, nice and. To meet uh, you, man. Yeah, good to meet you. Make sure uh, to click the follow buttons, all that kind of good stuff. On if you're watching live right now, and also if if you're if you want to listen to the podcast, go to Anchor.fm/slash Indie Game Business. We got a bunch of different podcasts with a bunch of different information on there, and also our Discord. What's that? Can I plug one thing? Can I plug one thing before we? No, uh, you already had your time. Yeah, you're done. No, go ahead. Um, I, uh, the, the, I, I published a more detailed version of the, the point I was trying to make about Half-Life Alex as an article earlier this week. Um, the article is called Half-Life Alex and the Rebirth of Consumer VR. Um, it's live on GameDaily.biz, which is a really wonderful industry news website run by uh, James Brightman. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you to, to, if you're at all interested in the details of my argument there, feel free to go check that out. So it's offline, whatever, send me the link to it and we'll make sure it gets put in the comments. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Also, discord.gg slash indie game business, join us. Yes. And the 900 other people that are on it from the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, All right. right. Everyone, enjoy your containment. Thanks so much. <laughs> Stay Thanks, isolated. See, ya. See y'all. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.